All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they are located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I. 
All right, everybody, sitting down with Peter at Body Comp Imaging in Vancouver. Uh, obviously, six feet apart, look, looking at the computer. I just finished the DEXA scan. Uh, Peter walked me through all the amazing information at the beginning, uh, showed all this incredible imagery. Now we're about to go through what we just found out about me, and then we're going to geek out really hard after that. We're going to get extremely educated on everything to do with DEXA scans, um, body fat percentages, what those actually mean, and how we have such a distorted perspective as a population of what a lot of these numbers mean. And we're going to kind of clear up some of that misinformation today. So uh, welcome to the show, Peter. Hello, Blake. Thank you for having me. So we are looking at a bunch of pictures here. We did a DEXA body composition scan of your whole body. And then because this DEXA scanner can look at bone density, we also did some imaging of your hip and your spine just to get some extra data for you. So I'm just going to talk you through the process right now of processing these images. Essentially, we took pictures, but from these pictures, we're pulling data points. So on the screen, we're looking at what we call your left femur, your left hip. Um, the hips are interesting because... They tend to do poor things when we break them when we're old. Yep. The, the little ball socket in the hip, it's a living bony tissue. And the problem is that all the blood for that ball socket comes from the big long bone in the leg, the femur. And if we ever break the, the neck of the femur, the ball socket dies. Oh. So that's where they actually need to extract that ball out, cut off the end of the femur and do a massive hip replacement. That's quite a traumatic surgery. And we tend to think of that mostly in, in old people in geriatrics, but it can also happen to younger athletes car accident victims, that sort of thing. So when we talk about bone density, we tend to measure two spots, the hip, just because it's such a nasty outcome if you do end up breaking it. And then as I mentioned to you earlier on, we'll look at the lower spine to track changes in bone density. So what I'm doing here initially is showing it the areas we're interested. We look at the, the femoral head down about six inches down the femur here, and then we're gonna compare how much bone mass you've got to men your age, and ethnicity. Um, most ethnicities have almost the same bone density, but African-Americans tend to have slightly higher bone density than Caucasians. Um, we used to think that Asiatic populations had lower bone density, but we were often measuring women that had grown up in World War II that had malnutrition. Mm -hmm. And when we look at most populations around the world on a North American standard diet, we see that we all have similar bone strength. So I just finished processing the lumbar spine. Here we're looking at your... Surprise, I just finished processing your, uh, your hip, I should say. Here we're processing your lumbar spine. This is your one, two, three, four, five lumbar vertebrae. We make an average of the top four lumbar vertebrae in densitometry. And I'm just checking this for quality here. That looks good. And then what we're going to do is we're going to compare these numbers, the grams of bone per square centimeter, again, against that population. And I'll go over all the, the actual data processing with you when we've got that on paper, or at least on a, a finished form. Now, when we look at your whole body here, the picture that we produce is squished vertically. So it makes guys look both a little bit stockier and a little bit shorter than they actually are. Yeah, I was going to say that I kind of look like the, the Michelin man. A little beefcake. Yeah. So the, the arms tend to look very flattering because they look a little bit bigger, <laughs> but the abdomen tends to look a little bit puffier. And we're looking at everything here in a grayscale image, and I can adjust that grayscale to put emphasis on either the bone mass the fat mass or the lean mass. And we can play around with this very high contrast version. Here we see more definition between the light gray, which is the fats, and the darker gray, which is the muscle, but we lose the contrast between the bone and the muscle. This lets us see that you're quite lean in your arms, you're quite lean below the thighs, but there is a bit of fat in the buttock, 
yeah. under the skin and the abdomen, and even a bit of that visceral fat we were discussing around your guts there. Yeah. Um, outside of that, we see relatively large muscle mass, the bicep, tricep. Also, we're looking at your spine, seeing a relatively straight spine, but if you see a minor curvature there, you're not... Yeah. misled. You've got a very, very minor scoliotic curvature. We see it a little more pronounced in the lumbar spine, but there's a little mid-thoracic curve there. Yeah, you really started kicking like L1 there, right? Yeah, and then you can also see a little bit of pelvic rotation, and that's often what affects people when there's a curve in the spine, is that the pelvis can rotate with the iliac crest either being forward or posterior, so that often affects people, and then occasionally we'll see a pelvic tilt where the left or the right side is actually higher or lower. Yeah. This is often perceived as, I've got a leg length discrepancy. You hear people saying that quite often. And it's really rare to have different length bones in the legs. What's more common is to have one of the hip sockets being higher than the other, which yeah. ends up having the same functional outcome as a leg length discrepancy. Absolutely. So before we start isolating your body into subregions, we tend to look at it in different contrast levels. And when I was mentioning, I saw some calcification on you you see how the the lumbar vertebrae there have a little of an increase in density and that's probably athletically associated i also see there's a fair bit of calcification in both of your hips on both sides but again rugby football sports history i'm not surprised we tend to see this in most athletes in their their midlife okay. so on a scale of one to ten how how bad is that <laughs> three. three really what you look at is is doesn't hurt. You yeah. could have really calcified, gnarly-looking hip sockets, but if they don't cause you discomfort or pain, yeah, hey, don't worry about yeah. it. Um, a lot of the time, it does suggest that you might need to have a hip replacement when you're an old guy, but that's going to be quite common with many performance athletes. Yeah. So what I'm doing next in this step is I'm breaking your body into subregions. I'm showing it with the little blue lines where the arms, the legs, the torso are, and then we're going to also isolate some subregions in your lower belly, trying to see if there's that visceral fat around your guts. So this software calculates something called the visceral adipose tissue, how many grams of fat there are sort of cemented around the intestines, the stomach, the spleen, where we see more disease association. So I'm going to get all this out on paper here, and then we can start making sense of what all the numbers mean. Yeah, it really, it, you know, just kind of seeing like my body in its entirety, you know, like that, it kind of gives you just, just such a profound like gateway into, and I'm sure that you hear like all the time, like it's just being a data junkie and just, just loving everything about my body and finding more diagnostic tools to be able to understand my body more. It's, it's, I love being able to see it with this imagery. What's, that's, what's interesting to me is that some clients want to come in for a DEX because they're very interested in the numbers. Some clients will come in just to see the imaging and to either be satisfied with their progress or to shock themselves into better eating behavior. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the Body Worlds exhibit, how yeah. profound effect that had on some people's eating behavior just by seeing the morbidly obese man that was dissected. And they could see that yeah. 15, 20 centimeter segment of fat mass over top of his organ mass. And it, we, we forget we're human. We forget we're alive. We forget we're tangible. I love that exhibit. It's, yeah. it's quite moving. So when we look at the population, that's another challenge because... Do we compare against athletes? Do we compare against the generalized population? Or do we compare against what's healthy? Yeah. Because there's all different different reference points. And in our population, um, we can, how can I put it? You could be the leanest guy in the office, but still not necessarily be very healthy. But conceptually, you're the leanest person in the office. We tend to think, oh, I must be doing fine. We compare ourselves to our peers. Yeah. And that's one of the advantages of being in Vancouver is that it puts a very high threshold on your fitness performance level and it tends to motivate people to strive to be 
better than is uh, the population average. Yeah. Well, you're either at the beach with your shirt off or hiking up a mountain. So, like, we kind of need a little bit of a blend between aesthetics and performance, right? But then I also get clients that live here that feel very isolated because they don't – if they do grow up athletic yeah. and they're trying to fit in, they don't really know how to find their, their place in this city. It, uh, it does put on some societal pressure as well. I actually have found that with quite a few of my clients too, where um, like uh, now as an adult, they never grew up playing sports because their emphasis was put on academics. And now trying to understand how to be able to physically manipulate their body into different positions. They just don't have that strong neurological connection with the tissue. And, you know, like it's a really tough process to develop as an adult, what I have found out versus just trying to like educate and teach, um, you know, like children in like that maybe like eight to 16 range. (laughs) It's highly adaptable. Just soak in the information. Just have like this this real primal ability to be able to move their body in any position that you subtly suggest. But like once we get a little bit older and become ingrained in our routines a little bit more tied to a lack of understanding and awareness of our body, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out how to control this, this vehicle that we move around in all day. Or, or skills we thought we've lost trying to get an adult to do a somersault, something they might not have done for 30 years. And you know, their brain knows how to do the movement still, but there's so many inhibitions against throwing yourself at the ground and tumbling. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's something we, we stay away from doing. Absolutely. All right, my friend. We've got all sorts of data for you here. So I've got you coming in just a little over 172 pounds net body weight. We're measuring 38.3 pounds of total fat, 128.3 pounds of total lean mass, which is muscle, but also blood, protein, glycogen, non-fatty organ, and about 5.5 pounds of calcium in your bones. So when we add up the bone mineral content, the lean, the fat, we end up with a total body weight of 172.1 pounds, putting you in a healthy range at 22.3%. Yep. So, again, higher than you might expect uh, coming in from an athletic perspective. But, again, it's nice to see referencing to a DEXA-derived population. You're leaner than about two-thirds of men your age in North America right now, yep. with about one-third of the population carrying a lower percent fat. Now, going through the raw data, left arm and right arm, we see that you've got about 170 grams more muscle on your right arm. So it's a very minor right arm dominance. Are you lefty? Uh, no, right arm. Oh, right interesting. Yeah. You're quite symmetrical. Um, sometimes we'd even see a left dominant person would be like this. Most of the time, a lefty ends up being right muscular, even though they're neuro- not neurologically dominant that way because of everything being made for right-handed people. Yeah. Um, a true lefty is pretty rare, but if you happen to play tennis or do a performance sport that's uh, isometric, we yeah. can get that two, three pounds more muscle on the dominant side. Okay. Um, in the legs, this is why I was another reason I was asking, we see about 100 grams more muscle on your left leg. Yeah. Injury on the right or why are your left leg dominant? Um, see, and this is the interesting thing when it comes to sports too, you know, like I shoot left, you know, like, uh, like hockey left, squash, right. Okay. So you've got a little bit of flexibility going on that way. Um, and then we'll see other interesting outcomes. So basketball players, if they're right dominant, will become left leg dominant from doing layups. Oh yeah. So certain sports are, I call that a crossover dominance. Whereas if you're a hockey player, you're typically going to be right arm, right leg dominant. If you're a swimmer, you should be pretty much symmetrical. So certain sports favor different asymmetries. Um, An arm wrestler is going to be incredibly right arm dominant, but his legs will be pretty balanced, but he'll have a, maybe a four pound difference between his arms. Yeah. So you get some wild stuff that way. Um, We talked a little bit about ratios of muscle in the legs to the arms. 
old school bodybuilding used to have an emphasis on these massive legs and it wasn't quite so focused on big upper bodies. So that was back in the day about a three to one ratio was ideal. Your legs should be triple the muscle of your arms. Yeah. Modern bodybuilding has got more of an ex-aesthetic where there's more upper body emphasis and that's become more favorable to be about a two and a half to one ratio legs to arms. Um, but I'll get men who have arms as big as half as big as their legs, which doesn't have any sport application, but it yep. fills in a t-shirt nicely. So, yep. so yeah. So where you're sitting right now, I suggest focusing on putting on more mass in your legs and your arms. You're roughly a, uh, a a two and a half to one ratio, but there's there's room to grow the legs more than the arms. I'd say. Yeah. Okay. Um, your fat distribution is relatively classic male. The fattiest spot in your body is that lower abdominal band, the android band at 26. Your whole body's at 22, and then the arms are the leanest at 18.8 and 18.9 percent respectively. Um, none of these numbers are, are unhealthy, but it doesn't give you a lot of room to put more fat on predominantly before there is minor risk factors. Yeah. Well, I see, and those, that's like one of the things I was discussing with you before, you know, like, obviously we would have, this would have been like my third DEXA scan, like if COVID-19 had not happened. But I'm typically sitting, you know, about, you know, five to 10 pounds heavier than what I normally do. Like at 172, normally I'm about 167, 168. So I suspect how much of that was abdominal fat gain with some of the higher carb variants. Yeah, you know, like I said, you know, being on that, the vegan diet, like where I was, I was up to 178 pounds, you know, like like, it was heavy, hard to be able to. Uh, to be able to move around all those kind of things and then not having access to a proper gym, you know, and not as heavy as dumbbells. I noticed that, you know, it definitely favored the upper body workouts yes. and not the lower body workouts because I just didn't have like the weight to be able to move around. So it'll be interesting legs. to see how you recover lean mass in your legs over the next six months as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Your muscles above average, but barely. The torso we describe as effectively being right on the median for muscle compared to 36-year-old men your height. Yep. The arms and legs are 0.3 standard deviations above average muscle mass, and that's mostly going to be contributed to by the arms. Your legs are probably closer to the median. Yeah. So above average muscle, and as I say, I describe your muscle mass as sort of being more than we'd see in a cyclist or a soccer player or a swimmer, but less than the rugby players and football players and Olympic lifters. So yep. it's a, a good place to be. And there's there's no correct amount of muscle mass. There's always a balance between power and speed and endurance. Yep. And there's a, it's the eternal eternal balancing act. Now we've got some interesting data here that I want to jump into regarding your bone health. So we did three different measurements and. The whole body is relatively close to the normal, but we see that you've got about 2,470 grams of bone mineral in your entire skeleton. We average out the whole skeleton to create this whole body bone mineral density value of 1.176. And it, we look at it here, we go, oh, it looks pretty normal, but it's lower than about 55% of men your age. Now, when I mentioned that we don't always lose bone uniformly, you're a pretty good example of that. And it's got my interest up. We look at your lumbar spine, and as I mentioned, you're not very likely to ever break the bones in your lumbar spine, the very lower back, but they're a good canary in the coal mine. They tend to indicate what's going on elsewhere. And the bone density there is lower than about 85% of guys your age. Okay. It's in a region we describe typically as osteopenia, which is not osteoporosis like grandma might get, yeah. but lower than we expect. Uh, I prefer to think of it versus the population. We go, oh, this is a, a relatively young male who's got a good nutrition scheme and has been athletic most of his life. His bone density shouldn't be lower than 85% of people his age. Yeah. Um, now, knock on wood, this doesn't mean you're going to break a bone because of it, but it does mean that I'd be very interested in seeing, can we improve this over the next 10 years? First of all, we've got to figure out why. 
Mm-hmm. You're not absorbing calcium very well. You don't have enough vitamin D. Um, yeah. I suspect loading's not a factor in this. So we can look yeah. into that and try to figure it out. And if we were got another supporting site here, your non-dominant left hip. It's not quite as big and extreme, but we are seeing it's lower than about 70% of men your age. Yeah. So this is something I'd consider to be a challenge. I'd go, okay, I've got so far bone density that it hasn't caused me any negative outcomes, but it will probably cause me troubles by the time I'm an old guy if I don't intervene. How many years would have this taken to say, like, if I was, you know, up here in the green? Um, for, so for everybody who can't obviously see this, I'm in a yellow region. There's a green on the top, a yellow band in the middle, and a red um, section at the bottom. And I'm in the yellow on both. So, um, like, how long would it have taken me to get there? Because this is kind of so, some of the argument with the carnivore diet, how, it, you know, it pulls a lot of, you know, um, of calcium you know, out of the bones. Of the right? bones. Um, typically, we'd see that over years. Years. And there's a really good potential that you may have always had asymptomatic low bone mass, but you've never had it measured. Yep. So that's where I think it's really good to acquire data about people when they're younger. For example, if I have an athlete who's got bone density that's higher than 99% of people, and he or she is losing bone at a great rate, they could lose so much bone mass before they become abnormal because they started from such a high point. Yep. Versus... It would be also useful to know if you just had low bone mass your whole life due to genetics or malabsorption or diet. Yeah. So now we've got a data point. And as far as bone health goes, 36 years of age is still very young. We typically don't start measuring bone density until women are about 65 years of age. And men are rarely ever measured. Um, it sort of reminds me of um, women used to get underdiagnosed for heart disease because they had different symptoms than men. Men would get classic, I've got chest pain and grasp at their chest. Women might have radiating arm pain and feel tired. Oh, and okay. often they'd go to emergency departments and receive less urgent cardiac service because they had atypical symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, uh, medical teams learned to recognize symptoms in females. And now they get adequate medical care. Yeah. Um, low bone mass in men is often asymptomatic. And then when a, a, a young athlete or a male working in trades goes into hospital with fractures, it's often assumed, oh, you're a real roughhouser or you took some real big chances on the job. We don't tend to go to oh, perhaps you've got very low bone mass and this is a, a clinical problem that needs addressing. Yeah. So so that's where it's a little bit tricky for especially young, healthy-looking males to go into the doctor, especially rippling muscles and, yeah. you know, big, big, strong guy. And Doc, I might have osteoporosis. Yeah, and I had a, an untreated stomach ulcer for years because, you know, like I just severe oh. pain and, like, you know, my immune system got so beat down by the end of it. Like, I was chronically sick probably 10 months out of the year, like, yeah. and no energy. You know, that I'm like, I- I'm young, I'm healthy. Like, like what is going on? And finally, one doctor's like, maybe we should just run some tests. Yes. So I was like at two or three different doctors, like, through that course of time. And, but nobody's willing to investigate because they're probably like, oh, you're taking too many stuff, supplements. It's probably the steroids you're on, even though I wasn't. You know, like, oh, it's just muscle cramps. Like, mm-hmm. oh, and, I'm, and I knew it was clearly more than that. This might be related. Have you ever taken PPIs, proton pump inhibitors? No. Okay, they're a class of drug that will often be associated with low bone mass. There, there's lots of drugs that are really good at what they do. Um, prednisone, it's a steroid we use to treat autoimmune conditions. Um, Synthroid for your thyroid gland. They can be disruptive of bone health. Oh, okay. So there's lots of different things. And then I alluded to before that I had uh, clients that drink copious amounts of um, Diet Coke or Coke Zero, and the phosphoric acid can induce bone loss. Um, so we get many, many what seem like regular things. Um, alcoholics tend to have a similar problem as well, that that'll often, two things, um, prevent absorption of the minerals and also displace nutrition. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking 2,000 calories a day of beer, it doesn't give you a lot of room for uh, Greek yogurt and eggs. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what, what would you classify as like, 
the most important here? Like, are you a, a bone health guy? Or are you a, like a body fat guy? Or are you a, a, a lean body mass it's, guy? The body's all cumulative. We've got to look at whatever is causing, preventing you from being your healthiest individual and approach it. Um, I get people coming in who think their primary problem is that they've got excessive body fat when I can explain to them their primary problem is they're severely under-muscled. Mm -hmm. And if you've got no muscle to burn calories, you've got a low metabolic rate, you're predisposed to injury, that's a yeah. bigger problem than just having a bit more belly fat than you want. Yeah. And once you've got the muscle mass built up, the fat should be easy to resolve. Yeah. Um, a lot of people come in wanting to see how lean they are, measure their, their uh, muscle mass, and we discover, like you, that there's low bone mass, and that suddenly becomes the biggest problem, even though we didn't realize it was an issue at the beginning. Yeah. So these are just snapshots. Um, body composition doesn't mean you're in great shape. Mm -hmm. You could have an amazing body composition, be 12% fat, have rippling abs, it'd be in awful condition. You could gas running to the post office. Yeah. So it's one component of what makes for an elite athlete. You could have the best composition in the world. You could be incredibly well conditioned. You could be a massive plus. Yeah. You could not know how to play basketball. Uh, so there's when we look at what makes athletic performance is both the conditioning, the composition, the skill set, yeah. the body awareness, and then the camaraderie, the team, the team yeah. play. There's there's That's so many it. different aspects of it. So this is just one of them, but it's a very important one. Now, if you look at the Olympics. Every athlete there on the podium will have a nearly optimal body composition, but having an optimal body composition doesn't get you on the podium. That's true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. I got a quick question for you. Yeah, and this may be um, something just because like a lot of this science, it, it's, it's new and not new. It just depends on how um, much time like people have investigated. And I have a molecular biologist coming on the podcast next week to be able to talk about cold therapy because she specializes yes. in cold therapy. Um, now I'm in the tank at least three days a week, yes. um, minus two degrees seven, eight minutes. Yes. Um, then I kind of worked out that I believe that it's about a five to one ratio in the hot tub right after um, 104 degrees um, to be able to adequately bring your body temperature back up. Um, so, you know, like seven minutes, but you have 35 minutes in the hot tub, right? Just to be able, to be able to come back around. Now, do you think that my body would have um, more or less fat on it because I'm regularly doing this for two reasons, to be able to guard and protect my organs, which obviously it knows it needs to do. However, we know with cold therapy, that your body will convert um, white adipose tissue into brown adipose tissue because it has the mitochondria so it can heat up your body, um, which it's easier to be able to burn uh, brown adipose tissue from what I understand because it has a mitochondria and it's kind of functioning for two purposes. Correct me if I'm wrong. What is your thought on all that? Okay, so at a, at a fundamental level, when you're exposed to cold therapy, your body wants to maintain homeostasis. It wants to bring its temperature back up to 98.5. So you're going to expend calories just purely on warming up your tissue. It's sort of the same theory is that you're going to have cumulative fat loss by drinking ice water every day just because it takes 10, 15 calories to warm up that glass of ice water back to body temperature. So you will probably get a cumulative fat expenditure just from trying to maintain body temperature. Even though you're rewarming in the tub, you're going to have probably more net heat loss from the cold dips. Um, most definitely the, the adipose tissue brown fat will help raise your thermal temperature afterwards, which should increase your resting metabolic rate a little bit. Um, the challenge is we spend 99% of our time in 22 degree rooms. Yeah. And that really predisposes your body to not maintaining. Uh, I've read some studies about the Scandinavian guys that build up huge amounts of brown fat from doing all the cold water therapy, but they can't hang out inside anymore because they become so acclimatized to cold water that they're uncomfortably warm in an office. Yeah. So I, I think to be able to induce enough brown fat development to be functional 
you're going to have a hard time acclimatizing to modern environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bit of a balancing act with it. But fundamentally, it makes sense. We, we look at babies being born uh, with significant amounts of ground fat and being able to survive colder climates due to that without being hypothermic. Yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but it's, again, we're, we're trying to have the best of both worlds. We want to have the ground fat development, but we don't necessarily want to be hot and sweaty all the time in an office. Yeah. Yeah, See, and it is, it's a lot easier for me to be able to be in the cold because I also sauna and stuff too, right? So, but it is harder for me to sit in 180 degree sauna than what it is for me to sit in minus two degree water. Now, have you found that it, your warm room tolerance has decreased to that? Um, I, to be honest, I feel like the biggest contrast that I have noticed is I have a very low tolerance for annoying cold out of out of it all so like if, if you're say out of a walk at night right now where like it was 25 degrees during the day mm-hmm. seeing that you started you embarked on this walk with a t-shirt and shorts on it and it was comfortable and you went for an hour walk but the sun started to go down and it kind of got a, a little bit cool mm-hmm. or you started walking through the trees where obviously the vegetation has brought the the temperature down where you're not it's not cold but it's cool like it so that i noticed that i'm more comfortable in the extremes interesting but I'm less comfortable in the norms. So like right now, I'm almost more uncomfortable right now sitting in this office because it's kind of cool versus it being cold. <laughs> like, I, like yeah, I know it makes very, but it's, it, it's like, I feel like I operate better in these because again, it's either minus two degree water, hmm. uh, which we put the Epsom salts in, in, we have a tank with Epsom salts in it with the circulating refrigeration pump. So it circulates the water. Um, as we found our water was freezing inside the tank, so we had to chisel had to, our way through it. So, so you had to, had to keep it moving so it doesn't freeze up. Yeah. So, and then it's either that or the um, 104 degrees in the hot tub or between 160 and 180 in the sauna. <laughs> and I'm doing at least one of these every day. You know, so it's like, I feel like that's now become my body's norm and the status quo we live in, which is not what our bodies should be living in every day, mm-hmm. has become uncomfortable, but it's allowed me to understand more importantly, the environments we choose to live in every day, how they're not organic to how our bodies should be operating in the environments that we are, because we have these physiological responses that happen in cold and in heat for reasons. And yet we keep so, our rooms within about a one degree variance. Yeah, range. and we have no physiological response except for what we perceive to be pleasure by sitting in this 22 degree room, <laughs> right? But there's no physiological response. You don't get a heat shock protein release. You don't get a cold shock protein release. Mm-hmm. There's no norepinephrine. There's no dopamine. There's no nothing that gets released because of this. constancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Now, um, one of the things we get to do with this data, we essentially have broken you down into grams or pounds or kilos of fat mass, lean mass, and bone mass. Uh, We can talk about metabolism a little bit. So when we look at the metabolic model, most fat does not have mitochondria. Now, you talked about some rare exceptions where we've got large brown fat stores. Um, It's pretty much acknowledged that young mammals tend to have brown fat, but as far as we get to be older humans, we tend to, in normal situations, do away with most of that. So we can assume that fat is effectively on the human body, structural and energy storage. There's about 3,550 calories stuck in a pound of body fat. We need about 20 pounds of fat to be a functional human, whether you're male or female. Above and beyond that is pure energy storage. Okay. Bone is funny because effectively the bone mineral content, we think of it as being purely structural, but our body uses it purely chemically. 
your body just wants to always maintain a supply of calcium and phosphorus and all these different ions that we use in, in biological processes. The fact that when you have a whole bunch of them together in a bank as their skeleton, it also gives a structural stability is nice, but your yeah. body's mostly interested in maintaining certain ion balances in the bud. Now, when we add up all three of them, we get the mass, but the lean mass is where almost all the metabolism happens. Almost all the calories get burned in your lean tissue. And most of your metabolic rate, sadly, is just your body existing on autopilot. Yep. So you, for example, burn about 1,680 calories as your resting metabolic rate in a 24-hour period. Um, basal metabolic rate would be you unconscious in a hospital bed. Resting metabolic rate is an approximation of what you'd burn conscious but not moving. So that would be around 1,680 calories. And then we project that a sedentary day where you do about 5,000 steps but no training would be about 2,016. So you're only going to burn about 730 calories more from laying around in a bed all day long to having what we consider to be a basic human day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people won't even make it to 5,000 steps. That's for, for a lot of people is going to be a little bit more than to actually burn. Yeah. And then I project that with 30 minutes of high-intensity sustained training, you'd be about 2,300 cal expenditure, 60 minutes about 2,600, 90 at about 2,900, and you hit about 3,200 cals burn with two hours of maintained high output. That's going to be two hours of steady state running, cycling, um, supersetting weights, things that are pretty hard to maintain for that kind of duration. And, and would it have to be in one duration? Or no, that's that the be? thing is it can be cumulative throughout the day. Okay. And this is all calculated using a formula called catch McArdle. There's lots of different formulas that predominantly take a look at how much lean tissue mass there is. Um, this one assumes 370 calories per day plus a certain amount of calories per kilo of lean tissue mass. Yeah. Um, none of these formulas are perfect, but I find this one to correlate quite nicely when we actually measure it directly. That gets to be tricky because to measure real-time calorie expenditure, we need to look at real-time carbon dioxide output. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty clunky to be running around doing performance training with a huge mask on. People will do uh, VO2 maxes on, on bicycles, and we can measure the real-time oxygen usage there, uh, there yeah. and carbon dioxide output. Um, other than that, though, we tend to use lots of approximations. Uh, algorithms, so we've got the Apple Watch trying to guess what the real-time burn is, and it's looking at a combination of steps and different movement patterns. Yeah. Um, then we get challenges that, well, what if someone is doing the movements, but their thyroid is operating a suboptimal level? They're probably going to have a lower metabolic rate than everything would project. So yeah. it's, it's really quite tricky to, to, to work with. Um, working with this gives us an approximation to help figure out a plan for someone. So the only way we can really have fat loss over time is to be seeing some sort of a caloric deficit where there's more calories burned than there are used. But the body does all sorts of funny tricks. And if you go into a massive calorie deficit, you tend to get inhibited fat loss. Yeah. So there's a lot of parameters. And then we have to get into the other big meat and potatoes aspect of, of nutrition theory is macronutrients. Yeah. We're going to get a different outcome if I feed you 2,500 calories a day of Slurpees and black licorice than if I feed you 2,500 calories of chicken breast and avocado. Um, and mostly that comes down to carbohydrate insulin response theories there. But it, it gets... It, it's challenging in that there's no one correct way. As you've experienced with all your different diets, yeah. there's healthy vegans, there's healthy carnivores, there's healthy keto people. Um, most of the people that are getting a good response to their diet have not over-consuming calories in common. Yeah. Um, my, my dad was great. He did the Atkins diet way back in the 80s before oh, yeah. it was keto. Before it was, Back then he called it the unlimited butter diet. And he was feeling better on this diet. He was losing abdominal circumference, but he wasn't losing any weight. And that's because dad was making 
cheese and butter sandwiches that were probably a good 500 calories each and popping them back yeah. like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was... Uh, on some Wonder Bread, too, to make them even better. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so nutrition is a bit of a, a swampy thing to talk about with people because we all have different understandings of it. We all have different emotional attachments. Um, but I like to break it down to non-emotional terms, calories, macro ratios, and then if we want to get a little more technical, micronutrients. Yeah. Essentially, are we getting have vitamins and minerals? And and that's where you can often say that one food might be better than another. We like, we like to say that foods are good or bad, and that's not really fair because if you're a, a triathlete and I'm having troubles getting enough calories into you, white rice or white bread might be a really good food because we're just trying to get enough calories into you so you can complete a race. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to lose body fat and I want to feed you only 100 grams of carbs a day, I prefer to do that from 10 cups of vegetables rather than two cups of white rice because we'll get more fiber and vitamins and minerals from the 10 cups of vegetables. Yeah. It's not that the vegetables are better than the rice per se, but they're more nutrient-dense per calorie. Yeah, and, and a really simple example of that for people too is like what we were talking about before. The amount of food you have to consume on the vegan diet to be able to get enough protein but then you subsequently start, you end up eating a ton of carbohydrates to go along with that. So it's kind of like those are the ebbs and flows where it's like, you know, to be able to get the amount of like, you know, nutrient, if they think of the amount of white rice you'd have to eat to try to be able to bring nutrient levels up if that was the only thing you're going to eat or in comparison to eating, consuming something else for the same calories, but the, the micronutrient level being so much higher and just a lot easier to be able to maintain or create this environment that you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. Calcium is an interesting one that I often get questions from my clients. Should I take calcium supplements? And both men and women should be trying to get about a thousand milligrams of calcium a day. Now, depending on how you eat, that's almost impossible or it's easy. Um, a Greek yogurt, a cup of Greek yogurt, put 250 milligrams of calcium. So if you love Greek yogurt and you have that and a little bit of milk and you like cheese, you're going to hit your thousand milligrams. No problem. Now, if you're on a vegan diet, you go, oh, broccoli is rich in calcium, but it's going to take about 20 cups of broccoli to get there now yeah. not a lot of people are going to have time or the jaw power to get the 20 cups of broccoli yeah. you have to start really hunting out certain foods sesame seeds about 125 milligrams a tablespoon okay so we can make that's a vegan diet that's not bad but if you're on a north american standard diet with lots of fast food you can actually be really really calcium deficient yeah. cheeseburgers french fries that sort of food are going to be very very nutrient poor but quite high in calories and you you might find that even though you've have a broad array of foods you're missing out on some pretty key intakes that way yeah yeah i mean you know, and that's like it's that's such a strong point because it brings you back to like the the zero calorie coke you know like people over consuming these things because it's like well i can get away with it mm-hmm. you know but like even like for me you know like like we clearly see even that i am aware of what's going on i'm clearly not getting away with anything <laughs> you know so like you know if, but for people who say like well I, I can drink two or three cans of this Coke a day or, you know, like I can get away with having this chocolate or these. So it's like, well, how much are you really, quote unquote, getting away with? Because we obviously know that this kind of imagery should be done, should be offered to the general public at, you know, free of cost at least once a year. Because think of like how this could reshape our entire medical system for, you know, relieving a lot of the pressure on it for people going in, you know, for all these reasons that they could be slowly preventing their entire life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, having an understanding of, of body composition just gives you a better insight into metabolic disease risks. Um, and the problem with the body mass index, in a nutshell, is that it came into being uh, post World War II. The U.S. Army was getting 
increasing amounts of obesity in all their, their, their men, and they wanted a way to easily classify who was obese, who wasn't. So a simple height-weight ratio tended to catch the guys that had excessive body fat. Um, in modern times, we get people that have very, very different interests in sport, powerlifting versus marathon running. You might have a man who's got 40 pounds more muscle than another, and they're both at what they consider to be their optimal form. Because we've got such a wide variety in muscularity now, body mass index is even less useful. Yeah. Um, we've also got more variety in nutrition styles. Back in the 50s, everyone ate meat, potatoes, and, and vegetables. Yeah. And now we get vegans, we get carnivores, we get raw food vegans, we get yeah. so much wild variety mashed up with so much variety in sport preference that... We our average height and weight are even less meaningful in the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's and especially for women too, I would say that's probably the most dramatic change because there's a lot of women who are beasting out now, like no. crazy. So you think there'd be like that that alone? Because like guys are kind of typically being guys. I would say like there's 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 variation, obviously, but I, I would feel like the biggest variation is like because strong is the new sexy. This woman's yeah. about five years old now, right? And I, like, I I know over ten women that can deadlift over five hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah, which is nuts. That's like that's crazy, crazy. ridiculous. That didn't happen a decade ago. Yeah. Um. So and especially uh, female culture does I think have more weight pressure associated with it, mm-hmm. and to be a female power athlete who is leaner than average but also quite a bit heavier than average, that can be a lot of mixed messaging when exposed to Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, though, right? Well, it's it, the conversation helps normalize it. Yeah. Um, and realizing that weight is a pretty poor indicator of percent fat is part of that process. Um, skinny fat was a, a phrase we used a little bit earlier, and I, I don't like that phrasing, but essentially we're trying to describe someone who is heavily under-muscled, who might have dangerously high levels of fat without a weight that indicates it. Yeah. And unfortunately for both men and women that are skinny fat, they can have a particularly hard time with losing that fat mass because their low metabolism from low muscle mass is part of the problem. Yeah. If you're very weight conscious, you don't necessarily want to try to put on more muscle because that might make your weight come up before you start to get it to come down over the long term. Yeah. And that's a struggle that we're constantly up against. So looking at fat and muscle independently, I find is much more powerful than cumulatively as a weight because the weight doesn't tell you the transition. Yeah. 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 Um, you often hear that you can't build muscle while losing fat. Yeah. And that's a frustrating phrase. We get these nutritional truths and bro science and girl science truths out there that aren't necessarily true. Yeah. Um, when someone is very muscular, like a bodybuilder, you probably can't put on more muscle while losing fat. Most of us aren't bodybuilders. So most of us can probably do that because we're not in that hyper-optimized state already. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of the problem is we hear these truths that might be true for a professional athlete and assume that they come on to us as well. I, I get lots of young men trying to bulk and cut. And after a bulk and cut cycle, they end up not any more muscular or not any leaner than they were at the beginning of it just after wasting a, a year of efforts. And if they'd gone steady state with a small calorie deficit with enough protein to build muscle with the right training and sleep patterns, they probably would have gotten farther ahead through a year of consistency than a year of extremes. Yeah. And, you know, and that is, you know, I, like we say, like there, there's so much misinformation out there where, where people are like joining opposing goals, you know, and that's essentially what it is. Like if you're going to bulge, just bulge, just know that you are going to gain some fat, like be comfortable with that process and then, you know, work the, the different stages, you know, and I, I think that's really what we're losing now because obviously culturally we get into this, like, you know, we have to have everything now. We don't appreciate the time it takes to be able to do it, you know, but that's the one beautiful part about like athletics that I feel purely is that it does take time to be able to develop that, you know, and, you know, and then one more time about like these goals, especially with like body composition, it's just like, well, this is, this is people's everyday athletics. Like if you don't play a sport, like, 
Like life now becomes your sport. This imagery, these scans now become your sport because this is what you can perfect. Is this is this is you walking around every day? I, this is a time where I'm seeing more people who were not athletic when they're younger take on fairly elite level sports in their 30s, 40s, even 50s. Um, I've got a client that here. She's been training. She's had to put it off this year, but she's training to swim the English Channel. Oh. So she'll casually mention, oh, I did a training swim over the weekend. Oh, that's good. Where'd you go? Oh, around Bowen Island. <laughs> like ridiculous distances. Yeah. And this is a woman who's got a day job. She's midlife. Um, so I'm seeing more acceptance of people taking on um, very, very passionate athletics, even though they know it won't give them a paycheck. They know they're not going to get glory from being on the national team. They're doing it just because they have the capacity, they have the time, they've got the interest. Yeah. yeah. But there underlies the human potential, right? Versus just sitting in an office all day, you know, like staring at computer screens, which like 80% of our population is doing, a very sedentary. And then you have these people that are massively breaking the mold. Like, what well, would you, I ran 150K this weekend. Or would you swim around Bowen Island? Or would you, I, I bike to um, Kamloops, you know, like, dude, like you hear people doing all these like extraordinary things. We get all these little jails in our head that we're not able to do things. Um, one of the things I get many of my clients to do is I, I talk to them about body weight training and the ex- exceptional things you can do that way. And I like to bring up handstands because handstands are some mythical unicorn that people think that young kids can do or gymnasts can do. And I like to talk everyday people into the, the basic steps of inverting up against a wall. And normally this involves you get someone to do a plank with their feet up against a wall yep. and they're planking. I go, well, what happens if you scoot your feet up the wall a little bit? And they go, oh, okay, that's not too bad. The next thing you know, you can get them almost vertical and they're doing a handstand and they might not have done that before in their life. And just that, that belief structure that I'm not able to do a handstand, then you show them five minutes later that they are capable. Yeah. That's, that can open up some doors. Yeah, open up the wheels, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's uh, little things like uh, doing pull-ups, doing a somersault, doing a handstand. We most of the time have those abilities as children. And then somewhere along the way, you you lose that ability and you don't get it back. And that's really sad. And it's, it's See, fun. To- and I feel like that sort of cuts you off. I feel like that's the transition that, especially us in Western culture, where you have to go between being a, a quote-unquote child mm. to now a quote-unquote adult. So, you know, you kind of hit this magic 18 where it's like, now you've graduated from high school, you should be going to university, you should have left your house, and now you're an adult because you can vote or you can drink, <laughs> you know? And it's like, but now all of a sudden, like, you can't skateboard anymore, you know, you can't do handstands, you know, you... you we you, take away the childish activities. So we've, we've, yeah. we've allowed we've allowed adults to play video games again. Yeah. We need to allow adults to play in gyms again. Right? Yeah. We need to get the gymnastics back. Well, I'm not saying, like, with my oldest daughter, you know, because, like, she likes to ride her bike casual. So it's... Uh, I can't ride my bike with her because she likes to ride really. Like she just likes to kind of most of the time sit on her bike and kind of kick with her feet. And it's, she loves it. But I'm like, well, what can I do? Because I can't really walk as fast as what you go. But I can't ride my bike this slow. Uh, so I sit around like, I'm going to get some rollerblades. So I found out that good rollerblades is like 200 bucks. So I'm like, forget that. Yeah, yeah. So then I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a skateboard. I haven't skateboarded for like 20 years. <laughs> so going around my neighborhood in like Willoughby, you know, I'm skateboarding. I got my shirt off. Daughter's riding her bike. And. And then you see, like, all these people are like, what is that guy doing on a skateboard? <laughs> and I love it. Like, it just, it brings me back. But I'm like, this is how boxed in we get to those moments. I'm like, you can't, like, like, what's the big deal? But yet, if I got one of these new fatty tired um, unis-scooter things, you sit with, like, the little handlebars, the big fatty tire, people are like, oh, that's so cool because it's innovative. But you can't go back just to a piece of wood with some wheels on it to get around the neighborhood just a little bit faster because you immediately get labeled as probably an irresponsible adult because you're on a skateboard now. It was 20 years ago when I moved downtown to the West End and I realized I loved the neighborhood because I saw some guy in his mid-50s skating on his deck. He'd never stopped. 
Yeah. He'd just been skating all the way through. Did not give a damn. It was, it yeah. was, it was glorious. And Vancouver's nice for that. We've got uh, a large number of geriatric skateboard commuters. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've seen any of the unicyclists. Yeah. We've got a couple yeah. of unicyclist commuters who, there's nothing cooler than looking out the window and seeing a guy on a unicycle with a business briefcase yeah. and one wheel. Yeah, it's, it's a good. Look. Well, and I like some of my uh, some of my really good friends are in finance, and I'll call them at, like two o'clock in the afternoon and, uh, on a, like a Wednesday, and I'm like, "Hey, what are you doing at the skate park?" Yeah. And I love that. That's good. I love that you guys like in their like late thirties, early forties that are just like in the random. They're just like, "Oh, it's nice outside. Grab my skateboard. I'm going to the skate park, and at the same time, closing a multi million dollar deal." Yeah, that's it's you a know, good like, That's what I love about Vancouver. Yeah. It offers like affords you that opportunity for us to be able to break the mold and get back to like, just being a human being and not being this this image of what human beings should be. Now, as, as a new father, I'm looking forward to going through a second uh, chance at playing and developing childhood skills and exploring that with my son because it's, uh, yeah, it goes by too fast the first time. It's yeah, uh, glorious it to sort of get a second. I, I can't wait for Lego, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's oh, what I'm yeah. looking forward to. Lego and plaster scene and all that. Guy. Like, I, I love all those things. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and see, and those are the things that like were like, I I find those are the representations. That usually, what makes these changes from these scans so much harder for people is because you you think like there's a, a big demographic of people that still think the only way I can make these changes is if I put on some running shoes and I go for a run or I go to the gym and lift weights. You know, like that's what I try to educate people on. Like, there's thousands of things that you can do to be able to move your body. But again, it's imagery. We get locked into it. And like, how hard is it to see any significant changes in any of these results today? Thinking those are your only two options to be able to do it. Well, and body composition is funny because we're we're stuck between. It's a combination of our in, our inputs and our expenditures. And food, we need to eat. It's not an optional item. We get into repetition behaviors, patterns of behavior where our food consumption is almost an autopilot. Where does it start off? Well, the grocery store, the habitualized shopping the food that appears in our refrigerator and our cupboards. Um, it, it seems like such a large concept to even begin how to change and see with our movement. We have to get up every day, we brush our teeth, we go to work. We we tend to place more value on the training than it really deserves from a caloric expenditure point of view. Yeah. Um, and we tend to think that the glorious training, the, the CrossFit, the circuit camps are better than the calories we spend just walking. Yeah. Whereas if you spend more calories walking than you do at the 20 minutes of CrossFit class, the walking might be more net importance. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 we like to place our emotionality on it. We like to think the foods that we don't love as much. Oh, I ate Brussels sprouts. That at least undoes several dietary other sins. No, it's yeah. just Brussels sprouts, man. They're just what they are from a caloric point of view. Yes, they're high fiber, low caloric density, lots of nutrients. But if you follow the Brussels sprouts up with a big piece of chocolate cake, yeah. you did not... Yeah. One does not magically cancel out the other. Oh, but you forgot, though. But if you eat the Brussels sprouts, the reward is the chocolate cake, no? <laughs> Isn't that the whole point of eating the Brussels exactly, sprouts in the first exactly. place? So it's learning to love the foods. It's understanding that it really is just a mathematical formula of inputs and outputs. And your best way to change your body composition is to do something consistently. Mm. So I'm, I'm very much, we talked a little bit about drinking a glass of ice water a day. That might burn 10 or 15 calories a day. Not very much, but if you do that three glasses a day and you do that 365 days a year, we're suddenly talking five, 10 pounds of fat loss over a calendar year. Yeah. Um, little behavior like going for a walk after dinner every night. You might only burn 150 calories with the wife out for a little jaunt with the kids. But again, if you can pull that off every single day, we're talking another 10, 15, 30 pounds of fat loss cumulatively. Yeah. Every input though has an output. That little walk will make you slightly hungrier. 
Yeah. And we have to balance all these things out. But I find it's the systematic behaviors that we can tweak and alter slightly, and that's going to be decreasing portion size, walking to work instead of catching the bus or taking the car, little things that we can do day after day is when we really start to get the area under the curve. Yeah. You know, which is even like the things that like we all know, even like from like our own personal possession standpoint, we're like better parking at the far end of the parking lot with your car where it's not going to get all the door dings. Easier mm-hmm. for you to be able to get your groceries in the car. Walk the extra 14 seconds across the, the <laughs> empty stalls till you get to the cars, but we have to park as close to the door as we can. Yes. You know, and, and it's funny because when I was young and stupid, not that, now I'm just old and stupid, but I was just <laughs> young and stupid. I was like, they should have like three categories of parking there should be handicap parking athlete parking general population parking so i'm like i've already burnt my calories today i want to be able to park closer to the door now now i'm like i'm gonna park on the other end of the parking lot because i just want to be able to have like that extra bit of time because i like so it's kind of funny how you morph all these ideas as you as you go through time no i kind of like looking at the reasons you hang out in the mall As as a young teenager it's completely to be seen and to pick up on girls and then you look at the geriatrics in the mall and they're doing it just to stay alive and that's their fitness endeavor. Yeah, 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 the great contrast. So I, I had a quick question for you. Uh, well, I guess two questions. For one, I think I noticed on the numbers where it breaks it down for like a ketogenic diet, a vegan diet is uh, on the back mm-hmm. of these sheets. Um, why those values um, would change if they do change because I didn't actually look at them. I just seen that there were the different diets on there. Um, but two, leveraging your experience in the field over time, that have, have you noticed, are we getting healthier or are we getting more unhealthy or is the data skewed because different people are coming to be able to see you do you see massive differences with different diets like because there's so much out there now i'm sure for somebody like you because like you could walk in and have 15 people walk through the store today and be on 17 different diets because somebody's doing two different diets in one day i I say there's more variants so from a get-go we're looking at the way people eat for a couple of different reasons athletic performance longevity and health and ethics and those can be wildly divergent because I think we can all probably agree that a vegan plant-based diet probably has the lowest um, carbon dioxide output and the least animal harm, which can probably be argued as the, the most ethical-based diet. Um, when we look at it from a athletic performance point of view, there's a wild disparity. Some people are believing that a paleo um, carnivore-based diet gives the best outputs, and then we're getting things like uh, game changers that are pushing a, a plant-based diet. That's a very individualistic outcome. And then we get people that are looking at uh, body fat reduction. Most people agree that refined carbohydrates are one of the primary problems. Not that they're bad for us, but they're so easy to overconsume. I could eat a couple hundred grams of chocolate and wash that down with Coca-Cola and then have a bag of chips afterwards, but it'd be physically impossible for me to eat 50 cups of broccoli, which would have less calories. So nutrition's complicated. Um, We get a lot of data now, though, too, which is beautiful because nutrition is simple when you look at it from purely calories, macronutrients, and micronutrients, Um, but we've got a really hard time understanding what is the best diet. Um, Part of the problem is that many disease states are the result of overconsumption of calories regardless of what the diet is. You can get obese and diabetic from having too much carbohydrate, too much fat, even too much protein, although it would be hard. Um, But North American fast food, processed foods tend to be the most predisposing for overconsumption. Um, Is a general takeaway, any diet that has... A higher nutrient density will be satiating, and that could be either something like a full carnivore or a fully vegan diet that's plant-based. 
So that's where it's really hard to say what is the single best. The diet that allows you to not overconsume calories and get that nutrition is the best. And that's going to depend. See, and that's actually something I found like really interesting about um, going through these diets is that um, I realized how important meat is to satiation. Mm-hmm. Because like being on a, on a vegan diet, I just consume and consume and consume. And like, like the, the overconsumption was incredible. Yes. You know, like, and I really just find that like, you know, whether it's like refined processed carbohydrates or carbohydrates in general, because of like the physiological effects that happen in our body, they are just non-satiating. Like, mm-hmm. like nobody can tell to me that you have, you understand what pure satiation is because I didn't until I went on the carnivore diet. Like no I had, desire to eat any more calories. No, at all. It's yeah. not on your mind. You don't think about it. Like it, it, it's a, it's a feeling that I'm astonished at. It took me 36 years to be able to find, and I only found it because I choose, I, or I chose to do this experiment. Or else I would have never known what true satiation feels like. And that, that's one of my, was one of my personal experiences with people on the ketogenic diet. I don't have enough data to prove that it's long-term good for cardiac health. We we know that saturated fat does correlate quite strongly with net cardiac mortality. Yeah. Um, but I've seen more people on a ketogenic diet who have been addicted to sugar be able to cure that addiction. Yeah. And I know that for them being able to drop 40, 50 pounds of fat cumulatively by cutting out refined carbohydrate and being able to keep that off is going to make a massive improvement in their long-term health as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tri- tricky balancing act. But many, many of my clients do not eat rationally. Yeah. Um, I tend to be fairly numeric focused. I like to eat based on macros and calories and that's how my brain works but I get lots of clients that eat when they're sad or they're excited or they're with their sister for a visit there's different reasons or it's movie night and for those people specifically the ones that would have completely unmitigated sugar intake I found that keto allowed them to understand that they were more experiencing blood sugar fluctuation rather than raw hunger yeah and they got to understand what it felt like to be a little bit hungry. Um, I've also had really exciting experience with people experimenting with fasting yeah. and learning that, well, oh, I can go 24 hours without eating and not die or getting weak or we have this fallacy that we need to eat so frequently. Yeah. And that's been, I think, um, inflated by, by snack food marketing culture. Yeah. Who wants Absolutely. to eat every two hours? Snack food companies. Yeah. Small frequent meals stoke the metabolic rate. No, they don't. But, and even like what I know now, like, and I think like how many years I bought into the system and it's still people perpetuating the same message, like, like smaller meals every two hours. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really agree with that anymore. Like, I don't know your thoughts and opinions on it, but it's just many a chance to overeat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like that, I feel like the, the two beautiful parts to me, specifically about a ketogenic diet and a carnivore diet is They've authentically taught me portion control. Now, the carnivore diet, you're eating an excess at one point in time, but then I don't even think about eating for so long, I forget when I ate last. Um, then on the ketogenic diet, you know, like I learned, you learn a lot more about portion control because you're just like, well, if I want to have some carbohydrate, I need to really understand like what that's going to look like so I can stay in ketosis. So it gives you like these educational components. So one thing I found that the vegan diet did not offer me at all was any kind of concept around food because it was easy to overeat. Mm-hmm. Didn't really have to measure anything unless we were specifically counting like calories, which on this, I chose not to in all these experiments but because just the typical it. person yes. doesn't. Right. That's the same reason why that I didn't supplement because the typical person's not going to supplement. Okay. It's the reason why I didn't chose to eat organic vegetables or, you know, go shoot a deer and have, mm-hmm. you know, like the best meat because the typical person's well, not going to do that. So I try to do these experiments based on how I would feel like the average person's going to do it. Wake up one day, 
90 degree change other way. You know, like that's all of these exams. I've tried to really stay what I feel like the status quo is based on like what I know. I just feel like from an education standpoint, except for feeling disgustingly bloated all the time. And because I measure my blood pressure every morning, how high my blood pressure went up, my biological age uh, went up and just like the amount of like intense inflammation, because Again, I would sit down and I would eat a meal where I would be stuck. I would get up, go to put my plate in the dishwasher. And at the same time, I would be thinking about eating something else, even though I'm disgustingly <laughs> full. But on a ketogenic diet and a carnivore diet, it's not like that at all, especially on a carnivore it's diet. It's almost a repulsion to yeah. you once, you've, once you're satiated. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, back to, uh, I guess, like these numbers here, like like the vegan uh, 20 protein, 40 calories, like, what does the 20-40-40 represent? Like, I know it's pretty So, so I'm trying to come up with general guidelines for people. Vegans, I'm trying to encourage them to aim for at least 20% protein. And as yeah. you probably experimented with, that's a really hard number to hit. Yeah. A natural vegan diet falls typically 10 to 15% of total calories. Um, vegan diets can also become very carbohydrate diet dominant. And I encourage my vegans to try to express more of their calories from seeds, nuts, avocado, coconut oil. And again, trying to maintain blood sugar stability and appetite control. Because when we go too carbohydrate dominant, I tend to see negative outcomes. Yeah. Um, the Paleo is a funny one because none of us eat like cavemen do. The entire yeah. concept of eating like a caveman is bollocks. Depending on where a caveman was existing, they had very different regionalized foods available. And most of them were starving. Yeah. So the concept of eating a a diet on paleo is not very great, but I love the concept of eating a diet that's mostly fish, meat, vegetables, seeds, and nuts. Um, effectively, a whole food diet. Yeah. Why? Because it eliminates consumption of refined over carbohydrates. Yeah. Um, so I love everything about paleo, as I like to say, except for the word paleo. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about a ketogenic diet, there's various applications of it, but typically it's going to be less than five percent of calories from carbohydrate. Um, typically our brain likes to run off glucose by driving into ketosis. We starve the brain at the front brain of glucose. The liver kicks into being the hero and starts making ketone bodies out of fatty acids. So our brain doesn't die. And next thing you know, we've got low stable blood sugar, a funny smelling breath and a very altered biological state. Um, it's quite believable that for much of human evolution, we were in a ketogenic state. Uh, we would have, before our agricultural evolution, we did not have refined carbohydrates available that often, if at all. Yeah. So I, I just like the point that you made that people were starving. That people were starving and ketosis was the normal. So I don't think keto is nearly as foreign as we tend to make it out to be, but compared to how we've eaten for the last thousand years, it's a little bit atypical, especially in the last hundred years. Yeah. Um, I got to start, I keep but like, this is the problem that I have because obviously the brain is on fire most of the time. Um, so obviously we know that the ketogenic diet, one of the things you would be very mindful of is uh, ketoacidosis, yes. right? So when we're looking at like, predominantly there's a period in time where people would have been in ketosis quite significantly just yes. because of food scarcity. Yes. So is it from an argument sake, do you think like kidney function and you know and just like you know keto or ketoacidosis was like a prominent problem although they would have never known back then you'd almost think it would have had to have been to well, some extent like so, so ketoacidosis you're going to see typically uh, uh um more with diabetics yeah um pretty rare for ketoacidosis to be problematic for someone in a ketosis state through through choice um and stuff like that kidney disease wouldn't have even become prominent because your, your life expectancy is so short 
Yeah. It's sort of like down in, um, uh, totally unrelated, but down in Mexico where um, they've got cenotes and, yep. and, and there's so much calcium in the water. People there would have been dying of kidney stones by the time they were 40 or 50, but it was almost irrelevant because... So, no, I, I don't really see a lot of problems that would have interfered with um, lifespan from a ketotic uh, diet. Um, even when we're looking at modern case studies now, renal function um, doesn't seem to be compromised by a ketogenic diet as long as, as, long as water throughput is maintained. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about that. Yeah. Um, I've got zone up, get all zone diet up. Uh, Barry Sears came up with that way back in the day. He was convinced that this 30-40-30 ratio is magical. Um, I just tend to see it as a nice mid-ground for people. Most people want to be predominantly carbohydrate-fueled. When we look at longevity diets, they're totally associated with carbohydrate, white rice, simple things like that. Yeah. So this is a nice, what I consider to be a middle ground. I tend to focus on a higher protein intake at 30% than the North American standard. But I use that as a tool because when you bring protein up as a percentage of calories, you tend to bring down net caloric intake, yeah. um, protein satiating in a nutshell. So that's where we get in trouble talking about, oh, he's on a high protein diet. Well, based on calories, based on raw grams, if someone's on a high protein ratio, but they take in much less calories than average, is it still a high protein diet? It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. North American uh, Canada Food Guide is all over the map. It recommends 10 to 35% calories from protein. 46 to 65% from carbohydrate, 20 to 35% is fat. So it gives quite a big range there. It's obviously carb dominant, but we've got to remember the Canada Food Guide wasn't originally about what keeps you healthy. It was about, here's what we produce as a nation after this war. Here's what we have for citizens. Here's how we're going to feed everyone and keep them from dying. Yeah. And it's sort of been maladapted with a lot of bias and pressure from the dairy industry, from the agricultural industry. So it's a it's a multifaceted beast. It's not just about what's best for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the fact too, like like all this really now doing is kind of supporting our, our medical system and our medical care and costs. Like in Canada, because when people look at like a sixty five percent carbohydrate based diet, they're not thinking sixty five percent of like the best car carbohydrates they can like that's the back door into having like the chocolate cakes i know a lot of people that's, like that's pretty well, pebbles for breakfast yeah Man. you know I, i'm not gonna have any lunch today so i can have two glasses of wine with dinner yeah one of the other challenges is that if the whole nation went ketogenic our food supply wouldn't produce enough bacon and eggs and we'd have an overconsumption yeah. of uh, wheat and our our, our industrial agricultural product process is not adapted to that yeah yeah. yeah, absolutely. We're, we're already having troubles with everyone wants to have organic eggs right now, but the um, the egg lobby, they control the number of um, free-range eggs versus organic eggs versus regular factory eggs. And it's expensive for egg producers to switch over, so their best interest is in their egg producers making money yeah. rather than what the, the, the public wants. Yeah, or beautiful seen, part about farmer's markets right there. That's a state you can yeah. put your economic pressure on right directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, like, if you knowing what you know in this industry, being immersed in it for so long, like, what what would you think? Like, like obviously, bodies are different, men, women, older, younger, you know, geographic things. But like, do you see a way of eating, like, from a percentage wise, outside of a label of a vegan, paleo, ketogenic, like, just as percentage of protein, carbohydrates, and fats? Do you see what you feel is your opinion is like the best ratio of numbers? I've seen too many very, very healthy people with wildly different intakes. Um, I think if, if you're not happy with your composition, if you've got too much body fat, understand your calories. Mm -hmm. 
is the first thing you've got to do is just do a little bit of documentation, write down what you eat for a little while, and then start studying what the rough components of those foods are and just gain some understanding. Yeah, um, I think the, the biggest takeaway that no food is intrinsically good or bad. Cauliflower is great for you until you manage to eat too much of it, and yeah. it's bad for you. It's almost impossible to eat too much cauliflower, though. Yeah. But butter? I could eat too much butter. Yeah, we all could. And yeah, butter could be good for us. Um, so that's where we need to be mindful. Apples, if you make it into apple juice, drink two liters of it. That was probably more apples than you needed that day. Whereas if you have an apple with your lunch, you can probably build that into your healthy meal plan. So just having an understanding of caloric density, uh, not eating mindlessly because a food is in your head good. Yeah. Um, they all contain a certain amount of energy. I think of it as that food is fuel. Yeah, and if you're overfueled, you're going to store it, and if you're underfueled, you're not going to feel very good. Yeah, and, and all food possible. isn't food either, too, right? No, that's very you know, like we alluded to before. Like, you know, we're consuming food that actually has no purpose for our body, no Correct. benefit for our body, except for that it is just the empty calories. Correct. You know, so then again, like, there's not even like the the spinoff benefits to it. Where like people are like, oh, I got a chicken burger from McDonald's, and it's like. Well, yeah, we can. Very poorly. Yeah. Poor nutrient density. Or, or the, the foods that aren't even really foods. We have a Coke Zero that has a bit of a stimulant caffeine in it, that has carbonation that makes our mouth feel good, that has flavors, but there's actually no calories and no nutrition in it. Um, it's uh, We could even argue it's an anti-nutrient, ripping calcium out of your blood and making you lose net calcium without actually giving you anything. So that's... Uh, it's like David Suzuki ran, ran a study a number of years ago where it was like... Um, like the outside theory, I think is what it was called. So like what he did was he took some people in Toronto and they lived in the suburbs and he's like, how much do you go outside? And then like the majority of people said, I'm outside every day. Mm-hmm. So then they actually tracked it. So it's, and this one gentleman was the most uh, predominant because they actually found that he didn't go outside for weeks sometimes, but he would wake up, he'd walk into his garage, he'd get in his car, he would drive downtown, he'd park underground, he'd go in the elevator, he'd go up, he'd go to work. Then he'd go down, he'd go across the, the breezeway that connects the buildings. Mm-hmm. He'd go to his gym, his grocery store, and all that kind of stuff. He was an in-shape guy, but he realized he had the facade of going outside. He was never actually outside. He's never actually outside. So this is, to me, like, it's like food culture now. Like, we have the facade of health. You're like, okay, well, you know, I used um, a cauliflower crust for my pizza. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, but you also have to be mindful of what else you put on what top else? of that pizza at the same time. You know, or to make that pizza or on top of that cauliflower crust or, you know, like you had the, the chicken burger from McDonald's or you had the, the chicken salad from McDonald's. Like, why did chicken salad? So it must be healthy because it's chicken salad. Not even thinking about salad nutrients. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, like the, the Coke Zero. Well, there's no calories in it. So it must be okay for me to drink one or two or three of these things every day. Or, you know, like these soda stream machines and all this kind of like where people don't realize the flip side of that because there's no education in that because it's really easy to educate people based on flavor. It's a selling point in itself. But to educate people with knowledge, they have to want to learn that. Yeah, but, but it's nice. But they've got the utilities now. There's the My Fitness Pal, Eat This Much, Chronometer. There's better resources than ever before. Um, I remember 10 years ago when I started this, I'd get people that came in with their spreadsheets of all the nutritional yeah. plans. And now that's been supplanted by online tracking. Yeah. So at least the, the resources for educating yourself are becoming easier. Yeah, um, absolutely. But we're still missing basic nutrition sciences in school. Uh, that would be something that could be easily added on to, to high school science classes. To, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental part that's missing. Yeah, unlike the... Uh, so in, in, for this school, because this drives me nuts, and I, I almost hate that you brought it up because it just is like a knife in my heart. So it's like we get these letters home from this, like our, the teachers in the school 
beginning of every year, be mindful of our teachers. Don't put juice boxes and fruit rolls and stuff in the kids' lunchbox. You understand what it's like to have uh, 25 kids in this class who are all hopped up on a shirt. Me? Totally get it. Thanks. You know, spread the word. Parents, you know, majority of parents abide by this. But then all of a sudden at the end of the day, you went, oh, you've done great math. Here's your extra large sour key from Costco. You know, now call me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you asshole. I'm like, no, I do not want my child eating that. But then you just threw me under the bus. But we're and, giving it as a reward. <laughs> yes, that's the problem, right? Like you've done a good job. Here's your sugar. Now go home and be happy. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a funny culture that relationship we do have with sugar. That's for sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. And then again, like this is our touching point because we know that once our kids enter the school system, they're with those teachers more than they're with us in a day. So they should be, we should be have this synergistic relationship with nutrition and understanding like what that really looks like and why it's not from like a kindergarten on. And some schools are doing a great job. Absolutely. But it needs to be a lot more widely adapted because obviously healthcare in Canada and in the world in general we have to start looking at it from more of a preventative standpoint and then a reactive because it's just not sustainable. But it, it's so tricky when we don't have a consensus on what good nutrition is. That's true. Um, there's very few scientific fields that have as many contentious issues. If you look at what the healthy diet would look like in North America over the last 20 years, it's been cyclically changing around and around. Yeah. And you've got very polar pressures from extreme veganism to extreme carnivorism. Yeah. And Neither one of those is entirely interesting. Yeah, so it's it's one of the more contentious areas of study. Yeah, Um, and then on top of that, enormous amounts of lobbying. Yeah, and that's uh, another big challenge when you look at the amount of influence the sugar lobby has had in scientific publications over the last twenty years. Yeah, they've done a lot of damage preventing um, acceptance of sugar's harm from from making making headway. And then on top of that, a bunch of twenty year old nutrition scientists on Instagram that claim have all their claims to fame with nutrition too, right? So um, there's a lot of 30s and 40s and 50-year-olds in the same category. I just think that it's interesting when people leverage a, a period of time in their life to equate that with health and wellness mm-hmm. and stuff. But uh, yeah, no, just uh, all uh, all great information. Um, thanks so much, Peter. I really, I really appreciate it. Like if you had just to throw like, you know, like one thing out there that just burns on your mind that you always want everybody to kind of know when it comes to like, like like imagery or like nutrition or, or health like what is there something that just is always kind of reoccurring in your mind that you just like to share with people um, um carbohydrate density i'm a big geek but just the idea that two heads of cauliflower has the same amount of carbohydrate as one cup of brown rice it would have the same amount of carb as one can of coke okay you think of those things as equivalents that 12 cups of vegetables would have you stuffed yeah. one cup of rice would have you moderately full and a can of juice or pop and you're going to go, okay, what's for lunch? Yeah. And yet they all have roughly the same amount of energy. So, again, getting beyond good or bad and just thinking of caloric density and that vegetables are often a winner that way because they're going to fill you up. Um, that being said, as you alluded to, the macro ratio is pretty important. On a fully carbohydrate vegan diet, it's hard to get satiety. Mm-hmm. So being aware of caloric density, being aware of macronutrient ratios, how much protein and carbs and fats are on things, and then finding food that you love because it, life is too short to, to, to not have a, a passion for the food that you're eating. And you've got to find that hybridized place where you love your food, but it supports your goals, but you can also feed it to your family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which are, uh, is a really tough balance these days. You know, like when you look at all these different components where it's like family pressure, social pressure, like imagery presentation, you know, performance expectations. Like there's there's a lot to be able to trying to, to buy ethically. Set, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to make those all fit into a dinner table that you're happy to reproduce. Well, and you know, and if you have a, a family of, you know, two or three or four or five, you know, and 
in today's world, it's all about choice. So when you go down to the dinner table, it's not like what it was before. It's like, here's your meal. You have to eat it. Like, you know, what if your eight-year-old wants to be vegan? Well, you mm-hmm. can't force them to eat meat. Like, and it'll be, to me, it'll be interesting, like, the shift of when, like, carnivore diet becomes a little bit more mainstream and children start hearing about it. And then you have children saying, I want to be carnivore. carnivore. Like, what they are saying, they want to be vegan now, kind of, like, is... How know, will the reaction be to that in the society? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, like, just where the education level will be over like the acceptance around that saying that you know if a 12 year old child wants to be vegan we're, we're accepting of that we almost promote it yes but will people be that accepting what, when it comes what to what if he goes to a pizza party and he wants the carnivore option yeah yeah it's and it's not an unrealistic question to pose it's forward thinking but it's not unrealistic yeah fun stuff you know, but in those those are always like the little like hinges because mm-hmm. like you said like when it comes to like health and nutrition around food intake there is nothing that's more controversial no. it's like like sitting down like a, a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, and a Catholic and saying, who's right? Well, we do. We've got traditional foods. We've got cultural foods. We've got ethical foods. Yeah. All these different feelings tied into Comfort it. foods. Like just everything, Correct. right? Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, we're obviously going to have more conversations at, at a later date, Peter. I just, I, I immensely appreciate you taking your time out today, walking through these scans and just being able to help educate everybody on, on a little bit more of like like a, a cut and dry, like a black and white, like like. Food really is at the end of the day just about the numbers when it comes to your body's health, what your body looks like, how it's going to be able to perform, and the quality of what your body is operating at. Correct. Good spending time with you, Blake. Thank awesome. you. Thank you.